Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Good evening or whatever it is, wherever you are, and welcome to another exciting episode of Chasing Hermes. I am your host, Jason. And I am your host, Sean. Wow, Jason, you seem pretty convinced about the uh, ex- exciting nature <laughs> of, this, uh, of this podcast. Yes, yeah. yes. I, you know, I, 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 I bet my mama on, on that this is going to be a... <laughs> Good and exciting wow. podcast. Mm-hmm. Wow, that yeah. is uh, that's something. Oh, we got so much good stuff. I, oh, this is this is one of my favorite subjects. I have to say, you know, how about we just skip the segue into this one and just say we're going to talk about magic in ancient Egypt. Magic in ancient Egypt. Yeah. that is exciting. That is exciting. They had magic in ancient Egypt. They did. You know, some would even say that they kind of put it on the map. Really. So many things that we know and love and take for granted today can really trace its roots back to ancient Egypt. And if you really look into this, you realize it's not just uh, a cliche to say that. No, that no. There really is so much that goes all the way back. Well, And magic is one of those things. I'm really looking forward to uh, learning what you have to share with us. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> am as excited as you are. Probably a little bit more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, explain to us what uh, what was going on back in ancient Egypt. Why was magic, or was magic, such an important part of the culture of this society? Well, I think in ancient Egypt, they thought in a way that was very different to the way we think now. The way they thought about society and the way they thought about religion and the afterlife was all very much intertwined and, and meshed in a way that we probably have a hard time imagining today. We've been living, you know, this dichotomy of, you know, the scientific versus the religious or the mystical versus the practical for so long that it, it's almost as though it has developed a psychosis in our minds that it's hard to get out of. Not so for the ancient Egyptians. Huh. To them, it was all one. And, you know, everything was dictated by this, you know, ruler pharaoh. And he was at, at once the mundane ruler, but also divine incorporated, right? Most of the pharaohs had names that meant a god is born, right? For example, everybody knows about the pharaoh Ramesses. Actually, there were very many Ramesses, but... sure. Ramesses really is a double word. It means Ra, Moses. And Moses means born. And Ra is the god Ra, the sun god. So it really is... So the the born of Ra. Well, more like Ra incarnated. Oh, okay, okay, right, right. And you'd have Tutmosis, which is Thoth, born. Oh. A lot of these names um, refer to a god who takes on human form. And so the pharaoh really was more than a man. He was a god-man, a god-king, okay? Mm. And uh, because of that, he was pretty much unapproachable. Wow. He was an absolute ruler, for good and for bad. The religious caste was very, very strong, and of course, there was a strong support between the religion and the, the rulership, the kingship. And magic played a very big role in their culture. They would have a, basically a magician's caste, that you would probably be born into. So if your father was a magician, you would probably be a magician, just as if your father was a priest, you would probably become a priest as well. Um, and uh, to my knowledge, there were mostly men who were, who were priests. There were not, not so many priestesses, oh. as, as far as I know. I'm, maybe in some places. I'm sure we'll, we'll get mail about it if I'm wrong. <laughs> was everybody else called muggles? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Okay. And uh, they spoke uh, their spells in pig Latin as well. <laughs> so, it's not Leviosa, it's Leviosa. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, moving so, right along. Uh, moving right along that. Um, and the magicians could sometimes be priests as well. So there are cases where you know, famous magicians were also priests. Um, but they didn't have to be. They could be laymen as well. Sure. But they always operated in or near the temple. So every city would have many temples, but usually a main temple, like, for example, Heliopolis, uh, yeah. the city of the sun. There was a very big raw temple there, right? And the raw temple would have an entrance, it would have a courtyard, it would have like a, an actual temple hall. And it, at the, way at the back of this area, there would be a shrine dedicated to the god. And then there they would have the statue of the god who would be more than a statue. He would be really the embodiment of the god itself. Right. So the god really lived in the temple. And the temple was called the house of life because it was the house, the kind of house, the life of that god. And beside the entrance, they would have often then a, a little shed or a house where the magicians would sit and work. So it would always be adjacent to or, or inside the actual uh, temple complex. So in these temples, they really believed that the gods were dwelling amongst them, that these statues not only were representations of the gods, but contained the essence of the gods themselves. Absolutely, and they could speak. You know, these statues could speak. And every year they would have a procession on the day dedicated to their patron god. And everybody would come out of their houses and see this procession where they would for that one day, they will be allowed to see the god. And they would right. really look at the god when they looked at the statue. And they would right. carry the god, you know, maybe 100 meters, and put him down on these special erected um, uh, platforms mm-hmm. built solely for this purpose. And people would come up and, and, and prostrate themselves and maybe uh, speak to the god and, and, and try to get an answer from the god. And then the carriers would lift him up and carry them another kind of hundred meters and, and right, put them right. down again. And, you know, so you have this procession. Now, was it part of their culture that you know, anybody had the potential to hear the voice of the gods, or was that a specific attribute of the magician or priest class? Well, you know, it seems like people could really hear them, and it has been suggested that it was some sort of parlor trick. Mm-hmm. Right, that you know, uh, there would be some sort of ventriloquist that would walk, you know, <laughs> with them. Um, but th- we're really not sure, and, and it's been speculated that some of these um, statues might have had some sort of trapdoor kind of mouth that would open and close. But if that's true, then we haven't found them. Jason, Jason you're, you're the, the chosen, chosen one. Lead your people home. I'm sorry, Shauna. I'm, I think I'm getting a message here. It's weird. Yeah, I see a burning bush. <laughs> um, <laughs> These statues would even have legal weight, right? That they would, um, they could be called as witnesses in in trials. Yeah, what? if a master knew that one of his servant had, you know, slept with his wife or stolen something, um, and none of them would confess, and nobody had seen the crime, obviously, you know, sleeping with a wife, I guess, you know, they would have been one more witness. But let's say no, no witnesses were available. <laughs> right. They could go to the oracle god. Uh, or the oracle statue, which wouldn't necessarily be the same statue as the statue of the of the patron god. Um, sure, yeah. And they would bring all the servants and say which one of them did it. And somehow the statue would indicate which one it was. And the word of the oracle oh. statue would have such legal weight that the servant could be executed on the spot. Oh, wow. And people question our legal system yeah, these days. I don't days. think there was any 
habeas corpus necessary in, back then. <laughs> but yeah. getting back to the magicians, the magicians would have their little shed next to or adjacent to the temple. Um, and this would be a place where the magicians would basically write. A big part of the magician's duty was to be a scribe. And in fact, the word for magician in ancient Egyptian was the scribe of the house of life. Shesh per Ankh. Oh, wow. So Shesh means uh-huh. scribe, Per means house, and Ankh means life. Um, so literally means a scribe of the temple. So the magician um, would kind of have his workshop in this little shed. And the workshop would probably have looked, you know, very similar to a, uh, to a, a scribe's work- workshop. He'd have scrolls, he'd mm-hmm. have reeds to write with, you know, papyri rolls and things like that. And when excavating ancient temples, archaeologists have often found these these workshops, and there's usually in, embedded in the wall like a, a shelf system where they would store all their scrolls. And a wealthy mm-hmm. individual can go to the house of life. Okay, let's say they had um, hmm. fertility problems at home, some sort of erectile <laughs> dysfunction, maybe, or you know, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it could be anything really, but let's use this example sure. because it's exciting. Um, and the magician would say, "Oh yes, yes, I got just what you need." And he would go basically into his uh, bookshelf and pull out a scroll and and look at it and say, yeah, "Yeah, this will do the trick," you know. And the scrolls would have a blank for the name of the person who would buy the the spell, right? Um, uh-huh. And they would basically just fill in the name as the scroll exchanged hands. Huh, that's fascinating. You know, it, it's really interesting that uh, these magicians were also equated with scribes, right? Because Thoth, who's attributed mm-hmm. to Hermes, um, is said to be a scribe and has taught man both reading and writing yeah, as absolutely. well as magic. So it seems that when we look at the Egyptian culture, those two were not separate no. as they were in our minds. To them, writing and magic were the same thing. Yes, writing had a very big part to play in the ancient Egyptian magic. And the idea really here was that the word is important. The word was somehow equated to the deed. In other words, if you said it was so, it would be so. If I would Mm. say in in a ritualistic fashion, Sean will find his lust and desire awakened by a voluptuous lady tonight, then it oh, would happen. Oh, yeah. well, go ahead. I, I do that Say for that. you. I do that for you. Uh, so all you ladies out there, this one is for you. <laughs> so the word was the deed, okay? And because so very few people were literate in ancient Egypt, um, the written word became regarded as almost even more powerful than the spoken word. So powerful that it could carry its power, its magical power, all the way into the next life in the underworld. And that's how the scrolls of the Book of the Dead came about. So what would happen would be that somebody um, knew that they were about to die or, or the relatives of a deceased person would go to the house of life and ask for basically, you know, next world insurance. Right, and they say, I'll have a number one, I'll have a number two, I'll have a number five, right? The spells right. in the Book of the Dead have numbers that are arbitrary now, right? They wouldn't have actually been called number one and number two, number five, or the 17th or the 125th. Those are names that we've given sure. uh, just in our sure. efforts of enumerating and, and cataloging scrolls that were found very often. 
Right. And for our listeners that haven't read the Book of the Dead, those are the the paragraphs and sections uh, of the Book of the Dead, much like the verses of of the Bible. Uh, yeah, but no, today. because they're 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 not they don't tell a consecutive story. They're just completely arbitrary um, spells. You know, like the deceased enters safely into the underworld. You know, that's and, and that's one well, spell. Right, right. You know, another spell is uh, the deceased crosses into uh, the house of death. But more elaborately, and what's interesting is that there were, you can tell that some spells were more expensive than others. So, for example, you could have a spell saying, the deceased passes through the underworld and is not bitten by scorpions or uh, attacked by beasts, right? That would be the cheap version. The thing that the Egyptians were afraid of more than anything was not death, but the second death, that you would die in the underworld. That's where you, that's where you had to watch out. Because then, you know, God knows what would happen, right? There's no recovery Even from Osiris the second never death. Even died a second death. So if you died in the underworld, who knows what would happen. <clears throat> so you would buy this insurance, essentially. The spell wow. saying the deceased is not bitten by scorpions or evil beasts in mm-hmm. the underworld. But if you paid just a little bit more for a limited time only... Right. You would get a, a second clause saying, and if the deceased is <laughs> bitten by an evil beast, the sting does not hurt. And then for just a little bit more, if the deceased is bitten oh, and right. it hurts, it'll only yeah, hurt the for a moment. The venom does not really <laughs> penetrate the skin, you know. And you could go on like this. It, 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 yeah. So they were very cunning, you know, <laughs> very very good at wow. capitalizing on people's fear of the unknown. Oh, yeah. So that was the, the, the kind of spell that they would mm. use. And, and the Book of the Dead is full of these. And some of them are very elaborate and beautiful language. Now, I'm imagining that if I were to desire perhaps uh, magic to be achieved in my daily mundane life, for instance, you know, what if I'm having an issue with, with an unruly neighbor who just won't mow his lawn? Could, could I go to this guy to uh, have a spell scroll yeah, written Yeah, I up? think so. He might even already have something like that, right? Um, and all oh. you had to do is, is fill in the name. But here's the crux, okay? You can't have people go around and just put spells on everybody, all right? That's, that's, not, that's not a way to build an orderly society. So the way to protect no, yourself from this, or rather to protect your children from this, is that you would give your children a public name and a private name. So every Egyptian, uh, most likely, had a name that everybody called them, right? Um, but mm-hmm. then they would have, like, their true name that only they and their mother knew. So... If I wanted to put a spell on you and I said, you know, Sean befalls a, a, a quick and hasty death, and your real name is not Sean, imagine that. Um, <laughs> imagine then that. Then it would be ineffective, right? If your real name is oh. Larry, right? Then, uh, right. then yeah, I would be protected. It would just simply not work. Oh. Right? There is there wisdom, is wisdom in, in that. that. Um, <laughs> now, there is a story of how the goddess Isis became the goddess of magic. Um, she basically went to the god Ra, the sun god who we already talked about, and she asked him politely if she could have magical powers. And he said, no. And so she went to Thoth and said, Thoth, <laughs> Ra says I can't have any powers. Uh, I, this is the children's version. you know. Um, and Thoth said, sure. oh, well, that's interesting because I have my own beef with Ra and I happen to know his true name and it is 
such and such, Larry. Um, and uh, and she, she she took the name, the, Ra's true name, and now she had power over him, you see. Now she could exert her uh-huh. will over him. And so she went to Ra and says, Larry, <laughs> Larry, you will give me your powers now. And Ra, whose real name was Larry, assuming for the sake of this story that his real name was Larry, um, sure. would basically have to you know shell it out and that's how she became the goddess of magic according to one legend and because of this legend she was later called she who knows everyone's name and if if you know somebody's name you got power over them so isis was revered but also feared because of this reason wow wow you know, Jason, I'm thinking of, you know, our modern conception of magic. And mm-hmm. even today, you know, we have a distinction between high magic and, and low magic or high magic and folk magic. And the high magic is typically uh, viewed as, you know, containing various ritualistic formula inside of it, whereas more of the folk magic would have less ritualistic aspects. It sounds to me that if all I need for Egyptian magic is a scroll, this seems to be a, a fairly simple form of, of magic, a, a very simple form of spells. Was ritual ever introduced in any of the Egyptian ways? Oh, definitely. Ritual was extremely important, uh, both in magical life, so to speak, and also in religious life, and you know, in, in mm-hmm. religious liturgy that they had back then. Ritual was was part of everyday life. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that you mention the high magic and the low magic, because I think if you would were to travel several thousand years back in time um, into ancient Egypt, we would find that low magic was present, and that out of this lower magic that probably existed before there was uh, a unified Egypt, you know, when there were still just tribes and, you know, farmers, that out of this evolved the high magic. And it is the high magic that survives because it was that magic that was written down. It is because of their belief in the written word that we know about it today. But there survive even um, uh, prescriptions on how to perform the rituals. You know, the mummification rituals, for example, are, right, are, yeah. are very common. Um, and in other rituals as well, what the magician is supposed to do. Ritual hmm. has an element of myth. That myth plays sure. an important role. That the myth is not necessarily something that has happened his, in historical time. It's like a legend, you know? And myth is right. sort of something that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And the Egyptians had a very rich mythology. Uh, they had stories about their gods and goddesses. They had um, a lot of concepts, of philosophical uh, and metaphysical concepts embedded in these myths. And they would reenact mm-hmm. these myths in ritual to lend some of the power of that myth to the present situation. And hmm. that through enacting um, the eternal and universal and timeless myths, they would bring it into the realm of the mundane. Oh, wow. Okay. And when sense. a magician would act out um, a myth, they might use an invocation. They might read all the attributes and some of the key elements of the stories surrounding a god. Let's say, for example, Thoth. And then they would say in a ritualistic ceremonial fashion, I am Thoth. And by doing that, they Mm. would invoke some of the power of that god into themselves. They would borrow some of the qualities of the god for the situation in which they were working. Hmm. Wow. Seems like very familiar subject matter, even to us today. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. So it's as though by reciting the myth, by attaching one's psyche to the nature of the story behind the god or the goddess, and then assuming identity by, you know, the I am he, I am Ra, I am Thoth, that it's almost as though the magician is performing a type of psychological shifting into yeah, the mind yeah. of the god and therefore borrowing the god's Absolutely. power. I think, I think the magician would see himself as, as a vessel for the gods to, mm-hmm. to operate. Wow. Because ancient Egypt was mainly a polytheistic society, there are some exceptions to that, but um, mainly they sure. were polytheistic. The gods were very present. Uh, they were extremely mm-hmm. present in people's lives. So it, it wouldn't have seemed strange for a person to bring forth the god through their body because the gods were mm-hmm. all around all the time and they were very prevalent in people's lives. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's as though we almost have an opposite society mm. today where... You know, even if we do have a religious lifestyle or we live in a religious community, oftentimes, uh, at least it seems in many communities in America, um, the relationship to God, to deity, to whatever spiritual power you worship, it often seems very far removed for most people. And I think possibly what we have to do is to reclaim the power of myth. Karen Armstrong talks mm-hmm. about this uh, in several of her books, to start understanding religious um, literature as an exercise in myth and, and, and understand yeah. it as not something that is to be taken literally so much as something to be uh, experienced and felt and, and acted upon. Right. You know, when you read about the lives and practices of, of the saints or the mystics or you know, various mm. religious devotees, that one thing in common amongst all of them is that their, their awareness of God or of deity is very close to them, very present, very real, and, it, it's, and is not far removed. So perhaps these individuals are following in the footsteps of perhaps the more uh, idealistic aspects of the Egyptian culture, which was to keep their religion and their gods very close to them and very real for them and not so far. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a day with uh, the Sisters of Mercy in uh, downtown Los Angeles. At one point, we were riding in the car, and I'll never forget, the Mother Superior, she just kind of spoke. And she was talking to God as if he was sitting in the car with us. And it was such a simple act of prayer and of communion with God. And it was certainly not what I expected from a person in her position. I, th- I thought sure. if you were the leader of, of your own parish, of your li- religious order, you would have a very lofty ideals of God. But she was so down to right. earth and she just spoke to him as if, as if he was right there. And, you know, I think all of us mm. who were in the car really felt his presence at that moment. And that was, that was something very, very beautiful and inspiring. You know, as, you're, as you tell that story, it, it strikes me as almost sad that that's such a rare occurrence these days to have someone that is so connected in a down-to-earth fashion to their God, much like the ancient Egyptians I think did. today we live in a world that is filled with objects and meaning and, and, and symbols. And that is incredibly rich in its own right. But I think back then the world was rich 
with a transcendent quality, you know, that we yeah. might struggle to perceive today because it is simply so full of other things. Right. And today, you know, if people are talking to God and, and we're in their presence, we usually want to have them committed. Yeah. That might be part of the reason why you don't see people do that so often. Yeah, People right. choose to do that in the privacy of their own homes. But saying that, there were objects back then that not only had transcendent qualities, but that had magical qualities and properties. Mm-hmm. If you go to an Egyptology museum, uh, like one of the good ones, uh, some of them actually sure. have on display a magician's sort of toolbox that he would have. You know, kind of like a, a, you know, a traveling doctor's little toolbox, but it was made out of uh-huh. wood and it would have various implements in it. Um, and they would basically travel around and, and perform their, you know, quote-unquote miracles. I'm doing air quotes here. Um, you know, they perform their <laughs> miracles out among the people as well. And guess what the ancient Egyptian magician's tool of choice was? Uh, oh, magic yes, wand. Yes, a magic wand. Right? Yeah. But it was not uh, a shiny black rod with uh, white tips. Uh, no, it wasn't? no, and neither was it uh, made out of a phoenix feather. No, Ooh, yes. bollocks. No, not that either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would make for a very bad wand. Um, but it was actually often made out of a, a, a tusk, like an uh, ivory tusk of some sort, or oh. maybe a rib of, of a big animal. Um, and these sure. wands would be uh, engraved, usually with animals or with pictures of, of magicians performing great deeds. You know, dominating snakes, mm-hmm. for example, is a common scene. They would have basically totem animals, if you may call them that. Animals that would lend okay. some of their strength to the holder and the wielder of this wand. And these wands were mm. probably used for a lot of things. But one thing that we know that they were used for is to draw a circle in the sand. Let's say you would camp oh. out in uh, the desert, right? And uh, okay. have you ever been to Egypt? Uh, I have you been not. to a desert? I yeah. have, well, yes. Then you have, you're one up on me because I've been to neither. But um, <laughs> if you would have been in the Egyptian desert, even today, um, one huge uh-huh. problem is scorpions. And today, you know, the first thing you do if you get out of bed in the morning is to sort of turn your shoe upside down because you don't want to be bitten by a oh. scorpion who might have crawled in there as, you know, as the sun was rising. And they would have had exactly the same problem back then. And what would they do? Uh, scorpion repellent? No. <laughs> they would draw a circle in the sand and they would imbue the circle with a magical quality. So as you would draw the circle, you would read an incantation against scorpions. Right? And so you're telling me that the modern practice of casting a magical circle in order to protect the magician against nefarious spirits and demons originated in ancient egypt as protection against scorpions absolutely yeah and uh i think (laughs) it it would probably work against evil warlocks as well yeah oh good good that was your (laughs) next question wasn't it (laughs) what a relief The things that are below are a reflection of the things that are above. Absolutely. Um, But if that wasn't enough, um, maybe you want to wear an amulet, a protective amulet. And they had lots of Of course. And they ranged from elaborate, you know, masterpieces of of craftsmanship down to El Chipo fruit of the mold, so to speak. This was one of the first mass-produced objects in history. And everybody would have worn magical amulets. Everybody would have worn them. 
Wow. Can you recall any uh, amulets that you might think of when you think of ancient Egypt? Um, what about an amulet in the shape you know? of an ankh? That seems quite Egyptian. It, it does, it does, doesn't it? Do uh, you know what the ankh represents? Well, if I've learned anything from previous episodes of Chasing Hermes, I believe that it is a symbol of yes, life. Yes, 10 points. Interestingly, it would also be the name for a hand mirror. So one pharaoh was actually buried with a hand mirror in the shape of an ankh. And you can find these in trinket stores all oh, over wow. today. Um, but pioneered in ancient Egypt. Can yes. you? Um, <laughs> but what's interesting about the ankh is that it was almost never worn as an amulet. You pretty much never find it in graves or, or anywhere. But you do see it in depictions of the gods. So it's possible that hmm. this symbol of life um, was uh-huh. so strong that it would reserved for the gods. That only the gods oh, wow. could carry the ankh. So it was not something that people would walk around with, you know, around their necks oh. or, you know, as earrings or something like that. That's interesting. I would have Sorry, not imagined that. Yeah. But uh, what you did find a lot of is the Eye of Horus, which is another popular thing to wear even today or to have printed on your tie-dye sure. shirt. As you right. Do. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Uh, the Eye of Horus was a symbol of health because Horus lost one of his eyes in his epic battle against Set, you know, which is sort of mm. Michael against the devil story in ancient Egypt, you know, the light of sure. versus darkness, chaos versus order. Uh, so he lost yeah. one of his eyes, but Thoth came and, and magically regenerated the eye back in its socket. And ever since mm. that uh, story, the eye of Horus was a symbol of health and regeneration. And did you know that if you go to a pharmacy today and, and you have like a prescription, uh-huh. and often you'll have that right. RX symbol? Yeah. Yeah, that RX yeah. is actually the Eye of Horus. Yeah. What? Yeah. It's not some like Latin word that nope. means prescription. It means nothing. Yeah. Really? That it is goes really all cool. The way back. Yeah. I had no idea. I bet they do yeah. not know that. Well, you know, the the Caduceus or rather the Asclepius staff is is also a symbol of the <laughs> pharmacist. <laughs> yes. anyway. Um, another thing that you find littered uh, in archaeological digs is the scarab. And yeah, uh, it yeah. was modeled after the god Kephra, right? Which means mm-hmm, beetle, but yeah. also to exist. So Kephra is the god who exists. So scarabs possibly ensured your continued existence. Oh, wow. So it's like a symbol possibly, of immortality. Possibly, or maybe your essence somehow, right? Um, and you find them in graves, yeah. you find them everywhere. And you know how the scarab has like a rounded part uh, with, with the actual scarab mold? Yeah. And on the bottom, it would be flat. And on that flat side, it would often have the name of, of, of the bearer um, and what the uh, scarab mm-hmm. was meant to protect you against or bring you. Um, and often they're hmm. very elaborate. And you could have entire chapters of the Book of wow. the Dead inscribed on a small scarab. Very cool. <laughs> that seems <laughs> ambitious. But handy. But handy. Good to have. Another amulet that you often find in graves is the so-called Jed Pillar. And the Jed Pillar is a strangely shaped object. It's, it looks a bit like a spool that stands on a little pedestal. And it is believed mm-hmm. that this is to be in the image of the backbone of Osiris. Right? Mm. I'm telling you, it looks uh, like an yeah, antenna. Say. So these Jed Pillars or, or, or backbones would probably lend the bearer some strength of Osiris, the god of the underworld, as the deceased would be judged in the next mm-hmm. life, right? And these right. were only ever worn by the deceased, 
by dead people, by mummies. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Another very wow. fascinating uh, magical object is the, the so-called uh, Yushepti statues. And remember in the beginning uh -huh. we talked about how the Egyptian society was very ordered and you would have a yeah, very strong social definitely. hierarchy? Well, in Egypt, the, one sure. of the ways that they built their society was that they would have days of labor. Everybody on mm -hmm. a certain day would be called in to do a day's work here and there. And that's probably how they built the, the mm -hmm. pyramids, um, but also how they built their giant networks of uh, uh, irrigation, how they used the power of the Nile. And, and so oh, okay. what they would do is that they would basically call your name. So it'd be like, Sean, you've got to come to work now. <laughs> and you'd have, to, okay. you'd have to go you know, present yourself for a day's work. And the idea was that this kind of social hmm. system would continue into the afterlife. So on a particular day, your name would be called and you would be expected to show up for work. Um, but <laughs> the Yushepti would be the answerer. Uh, and it would be a little labor statue. On the day when you were called, it would say, here I am. You know, it would answer <laughs> and it would go and work for you. So you'd find all these statues. Rich people would have 365 statues um, for different purposes. <laughs> They're, they're like yeah, little, little minions. minions. Exactly. Exactly. In the afterworld. Some of them would be equipped with farmers' equipments, and some of them would be equipped as bricklayers, etc. So, um, sure. they would basically ensure that you didn't have to work in the next life. That do you is remember handy. Fantasia, the Disney movie? Yes. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Big, Big pointy, pointy blue hat. Yeah, I remember the uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. He he ran into all that problem with the flooding right, basement. Right, and he basically charges a uh, a broomstick with uh, carrying water, right? And then everything kind of uh -huh, goes yeah. downhill from there, right? <laughs> yeah, they just keep, keep multiplying, multiplying. And, you know, there's broomsticks everywhere, you know. Um, <laughs> and eventually Oops. the master mag magician comes home and he kind of sets everything right. That is actually based on an ancient Egyptian legend uh, of the Yusheptis. What? Yeah. Mickey Mouse was an ancient <laughs> No, Egypt. he wasn't. No, that's, but uh, wow. oh. the story is directly lifted from one of these scrolls. Yeah. Really? It's an ancient Egyptian legend of the Yushepti. So of broomsticks exactly. carrying water yeah, it's, and it's multiplying. It's pretty much the same story. All right, Jason. So this is very fascinating. I'm sure that all of our listeners are really excited and really juiced up about this ancient Egyptian magic, but they're probably still wondering, all right, th this is all good and in theory, but what does it actually sound like? What was an ancient Egyptian spell truly composed of? Do you think you might be able to uh, share an example? Certainly, I can do that. And I think this is a good time <laughs> to give a shout out to my main man, Bob, Bob Breyer, who wrote this excellent book, uh, ancient Egyptian magic, um, from Ooh. which I've lifted a lot of the information for this podcast. Bob is an excellent scholar. And mm -hmm. what I love about Bob Breyer is that he has a way of making everything very interesting and exciting. I really recommend some of the Discovery Channel specials that he's taken part of or find him on YouTube or even better, some of his audio lectures with the teaching company. You won't regret it, I promise. Mm. That's really cool. Do you have a spell for um, uh, seeking favor amongst your listeners? There's got to be one. Come on. I've been reciting it silently all the time. <laughs> I have a spell to make love day and night. In the next world, though. It's not in this world. Uh, you definitely one-up me. It says uh, in the papyrus that contains the spell is that, uh, and I quote, As for any man who shall know this spell, 
He shall copulate in this land by night and by day, and desire shall come to the woman beneath him, wherever he copulates. And the spell is to be recited over a bead of carnelian or of amethyst, and to be placed on the right arm of the deceased. If your uncle didn't get much in this life, you know, and you feel pity over him, you can recite this over his dead body. Over my dead body! Wow. (laughs) <laughs> over my dead you want body. To spell? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, definitely. Okay, well, uh, I, I want to hear the spells yeah. of the whores yeah, of the netherworld. We might want to cover the ears of some of our younger listeners. Yeah. Okay. okay. Earmuffs. The spell to make love day and night in the next world. Copulating by a man in the realm of the dead. My eyes are the lion, my phallus, Bobby. I am the outcast. Seed is in my mouth. My head is in the sky. My head is on the earth. I am one, having power in my heart. <laughs> I think that's actually the spell of reducing one to the age Wait, of I'm 12. I'm not finished. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead. I am one, having power in my heart. I am one who ejaculates when he knits together. I ejaculate seed as that one and this one. And that's the end of the spell. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you say he ejaculates while knitting? Yeah, there's a question mark around that. They're not sure what that means. But uh, yeah. oh, don't see. you? <laughs> <laughs> Here's a scarf. Sorry about the stain. No, in all all uh, all honesty, there's a question mark there. So it may it may have meant something else. Uh, some of it may have been lost in sure, translation. Sure. But I'm sure whoever said it, you know, recited it, felt very powerful. Um, <sighs> and uh, uh, that's you know one thing you can say about the ancient Egyptians, and that was that they were not a very prude people. And in fact, you know, mm-hmm. when a lot of these writings uh, resurfaced again as they were retranslated in Victorian England, uh, some of them had to be hidden away because there were just too much. You know, tales of oh wow, yeah, tales I of bet. divine sodomy and you know the like. It was not, uh, you know, well received by Victorian no, England. No. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, hmm. uh, be careful uh, out there with your magical spells, and uh, you know sometimes. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you get what you wish for. And I'm not sure I want to mm. spend my entire afterlife copulating. So, eh. no, yeah. Over yeah. my dead body, I say. Yeah. <laughs> I learned something today, Jason. I learned that a lot of the magical theories and practices that we have today, a lot of the examples of how we implement the great emerald tablet of Hermes in order to achieve balance of the things that are above and the things that are below, a lot of these formulas were derived from ancient Egyptian sources. And it's, and it's not completely a romantic notion that our modern mystical traditions go back into ancient times. It it seems that there is plenty of evidence to support this idea that there is a lineage that can be traced from modern mystical practices to ancient Egypt. And I think it's exciting that we're taking this adventure um, to discover how this lineage unfolded into modern times. And I think when we meet again, we might have uh, reason to return to the legacy of ancient Egypt and how it affected later civilization. What do you think about that? I think that would be immensely fascinating. Uh, It's a plan. All right, dude. All right. 
Well, I hope everybody found this show exciting, educational, and inspiring. If you have any other uh, comments or suggestions or additions, please feel free to post on ChasingHermes.com. And um, we'd love to share with the community. So thank you, everybody. And we will see you next time. This is Sean. Bye-bye. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.